out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the drummer. It is Becky Reck from The Lunar Chicks, plus um, hundreds of other bands. That's a slight exaggeration, but she has been in a lot of combos over the last... 30, 40 years. So you'll find out more about it. So I won't bore you. We're just going to get straight into it. So after several minutes of casual chat that you do in the world that is rock and roll, which gets edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Becky, it's over to you. My father was a music critic when I was growing up. Um, So I actually met Janis Joplin when I was about four. My God. Because he... he, um, it was it was like a few weeks before Woodstock, and they there were, it was similar to the Monterey Pop Festival, but it was on the East Coast, and it was at Atlantic City Racetrack, and nobody knows about it. I mean, it's very hard to find anything about it or videos because nothing happened. You know, it was people that knew how to put on a show, and professionals, and they just put on this big show. And I was there, and the only thing I remember from it was meeting janice joplin so having said that i grew up around my father's main focus being music and like pop music but it's rock and roll from the 60s you know like when elvis died he had to leave town go to to go to memphis man it was like big story yes so i so i mean i had a lot of influences but i got i say you know stuff that really made me like want to play music i gotta say is like elton john I mean, Benny and the Jets, I mean, and then to know like that he was gay, you know, and like couldn't find any out women, but he, but you know, you knew, even though he didn't say, you knew, you know what I mean? (laughs) This is true. So what was your dad's name? Jack Lloyd. Jack Lloyd, blimey. And he was the pop music critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer, basically most of my growing up. My first concert, live concert was Three Dog Night. Three Dog Night, God, that's amazing. Do you know who they are? No, that's true. I was just trying to pretend they are. <laughs> they had a hit song in the 70s, Mama Told Me Not To Come. Oh, who covered that? Oh, Tom Jones, didn't he? Did he? Okay, but I mean, and they have a lot of hits from the 70s, but they were definitely an American band. My God. So you had um, you had the accent. Canadian God, I don't know. Yes. Well, because my brother was seven years older than me and I was very kind of like smitten with him. I thought he was brilliant. And he had a couple of really good albums, being one being Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which was kind of fantastic. And it had, I believe, Benny and the Jets, Saturday Night's OK for Fighting and also a track called Harmony, which blew my mind. Yeah, so, for real. David. I mean, total musicianship, too. So, I mean, because I was around a lot of music, um, well, it was my father. I know my father kind of like like country, like Johnny Cash. Like when he would be playing music to to listen to for fun, not work, it would be like country, I would say. But I know he liked the Beatles and shit like that too. Um, I actually have a tape recording of him interviewing Bob Dylan, and they're like totally smoking weed because they're coughing. <laughs> <laughs> so that means he had a lot of free records around the house that you could just kind of access. My God, uh, we would get them in the mail. Every day, three, four albums, swag. Talk about swag with the little sticker on them, not for sale. You know, if I had half of the swag that I had from back, I had a Bowie t-shirt where he played at the Riverfront Coliseum 
in Cincinnati, I think. And I, to, if I still had that shirt, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, when I just, well, there's things I remember like that, like. Well, yeah, absolutely. So what, what sort of gave you the moment that, that made you think, I really want to become a musician, you know, or pick up the drums? Well, or, I think meeting Janis Joplin, because also, um, when, as soon as I could form thoughts, I knew there was, it's not that I didn't want to be a girl. I just knew that girls were treated differently than boys and they were treated less than. And so I, I wasn't having any of that. I thought something was wrong. I mean, I mean, like my brother would get a suit and little shoes. I mean, I could even talk, but I would have been happy to have like a tie and a suit, but my mom would put me in these frilly dresses and like Mary Janes and I would just take my clothes off immediately. And I, I couldn't even say why I know now, now I know why <laughs> I didn't want to dress like a girl. So I thought, I think I always felt like women, but not women, grown-ups, adults were patronized. Like they would talk, oh, little girl, blah, blah. But I totally felt like they weren't really seeing me. They were just, because I guess I knew I wasn't, I didn't feel like a little girl. So when they would talk to me like that, it was like, what the fuck? So when I met Janice, it was just for a second. She came into this room and, and, and you know, my brother, he was two years older than me. My mom was pretty straight laced and from the South. So, but when she walked in the room, she came straight to me and got down on her knees and said, Hey, little girl, what's your name? And I was like, she's talking to me. And like, I, that's kind of all that happened. And then, you know, my dad and they went somewhere and I looked up at my mom and I was like, I want to be like her. And my mom was like, no, you don't. She's drunk. <laughs> that's yeah. all that happened. But it's the first time I felt like she was so like, all I remember is this woman coming into the room and she just focused right on me. She had flowing colors and clothes and, and just came right to me. And I just thought, you know, like I was a kind of afraid, but also knew like she is talking to me. Yes, absolutely. That's it. That's all. But so, I mean, I think all the influence, well, you know, if you were born in 64, like all the influences I had, they did do drugs, marijuana. Well, I don't know. Drinking was more about that rat pack, like the older crowd, you know, thought that was cool. So I think the, the musicians that I looked up to, they were smoking pot. Yes, absolutely. They were doing acid, but I wasn't. So I think I thought, oh, you have to do that to be a rock and roll musician. You have to smoke weed. And it was kind of the anti what my parents were. Yes. It was interesting because because when we were growing up and, you know, I put the word we, but you used to hear musicians saying, you know, being asked why they got into music and they would often say it was sex, drugs and rock and roll. So from quite an early age, you heard that term quite a lot here and there, didn't you? I mean, I'm I'm sure that, you know, people don't say it anymore for various reasons, probably legal. Um, But yes, it was kind of a thing, wasn't it? And when you watch kind of old videos of old interviews of people in the 70s being interviewed they would be there with a fag in their hand and smoking and and it was kind of and then we saw the Woodstock film which people were talking about marijuana so um yes and then the, the Monterey Pop Festival as well so you know it was it was kind of the forbidden thing wasn't it yeah but it was also I mean while people were trying to put it down I mean a lot of it to me, you know, naked hippies and shit like that. Maybe that went over my head. I, I don't know if it went over my head. I, th- I think that because I knew at a young age that I liked girls, that I probably figured that anybody that was doing that would probably not care, you know, <laughs> you know, that whatever <laughs> I did. But 
I think it was more about I really saw how they did change the establishment. They real I mean they might have been smoking pot, but they did turn on. They did tune out and turn on. And they did cause a revolution. I mean, you can say whatever you want, but I, I'm not saying the drugs did, but they're they're, they're anti-establishment and you know definitely and all those songs, you know, it was all anti-establishment, anti-war, you know, it you know, I mean, it was powerful. It was a powerful message. I, I thought those are people that can really make a difference. I think that's what I thought too. Yes. So was your dad just was he going to virtually concerts all the time and going to yep. f festivals as well? I don't know how many festivals they had back then, to tell you the truth. That was a rare one that I remember. Because um, that's why Woodstock is such a big deal. They, they didn't have, Like now you have, you've had the Reading Festival. I know when I lived in Belgium and played with La Muerte in 1986, we were playing a lot of festivals over there. But I don't know how many festivals were happening. Oh, we, every year we went to the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Right. That was pretty cool, but that wasn't, they were like really obscure names at the time, you know, like, but my dad really liked stuff like that. I think I met, I think I saw Ray Charles at one of those, which would be crazy, but I think I did. Um, or Moms Mabley, stuff, I mean, really obscure stuff, but that's what I, I, I don't know, but the Philadelphia Festival, Folk Festival happened every year, but they didn't just have folk acts. It was a big deal. Yes, absolutely. Singer songwriters. But it probably. wasn't mainstream, you know, it was. Yes. So as the 70s progressed, when did you first start playing a drum, you know, the drums? Or when did I the drums. I started drum... playing drums in third grade. And I was eight years old. And my brother played guitar. So I saw his guitar teacher. And I think I wanted to play the tambourine like Davy Jones and the Monkees. That's yes. what I was going to do. That's and, very um, tempting. So. I think I might have said that to the guitar. Like he might have asked me, "What do I want to play?" I said tambourine, and he's like, "Oh, that's percussion. That's drums." And I was like, "Oh." So then I—that's when I knew. Okay, well then I have to play every, you know, drums. So then. And, and were you completely taken with it as soon as you sat down and started to play? You know, on the kit. Uh, no, I, I don't know, but. Uh, I think when I would watch bands and I would watch the drummer, I just thought, oh my God, he's doing so much stuff. There's so many things going on. Like, how did, oh my God, you know, that, that's who I've, you know, looked at. Like, I thought they were so cool. They were sitting back there and they were, you know, just so cool. I think that, that that's part of it. And also um, in, in my school, in, in elementary school in third grade, they asked us if you wanted to play an instrument, you know, write, write, you know, take this home to your parents and get them to sign it. So I knew I wanted to play the drums, but my mom made me write the flute first because everybody was, oh, little girls don't do that. Little, and I, that's another reason why I was like, well, then I must, I, there must be a mistake. I must not be a girl because I, everything I want to do is not what girls do. So, you know, what's going on here? Um, and then when I went to school, same thing. They, my mom wrote down flute and then let me put drums as second. Well, they were like, oh my God, we have too many flute players, but why do you want to play the drums? Girls don't play the drums. And I said, Karen Carpenter plays the drums. Yes, I was going to like, And they couldn't say anything. So I learned right then and there, precedent. If one woman comes up, we all, we all rise because that's setting precedent and nobody can have a reason why you can't do something. So she was a big, big deal to me. And I got to see her play live because of my dad's job. My God, I never met her or anything, but she did play drums in her show. 
So I got the speaker come out and play drums. I have to say, I, the Carpenters were one of those bands in the early 70s that I, my parents had a few records and one of them was the Carpenters. I was always amazed by the lyrics. The lyrics of the Carpenters just blew my mind. Right? Still, totally like poignant and heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking. So hard. I know. This, they're not going to listen to that song today and think, oh, that was cheesy. No, it's still like. No. Well, I always said to myself, anyway, that um, if you like the Carpenters, you're definitely going to like Joy Division and the Smiths, because frankly, it's all about sadness, <laughs> like alienation and being on your own, really. Because, um, you know, w w when you hear a song saying goodbye to love, no one seems to care if I should live or die. That's kind of not cheesy. That's just very depressing. It's, po it's poetry, but well, you know, her, I mean, now that I'm older, I, I knew none of this when I was young, but her story is so unbelievable because she did not want to be the girl in the front singing. She just wanted to play the drums. She yeah. would have played the drums and sang, but they weren't having it. The record company, her brother. So I think that totally is part of the reason she became anorexic. She did not want to look like the pretty girl because that's why they wanted her up front. She was the pretty girl. That's where she was supposed to be. She just wanted to play the drums and nobody would listen to her and nobody. So, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I can see why you might think if you destroy that part of you that looks like that maybe they won't want you to do it not knowing you're going to kill yourself that way or whatever but it's so <laughs> subconscious because i know that i acted off of deferment and defense for a long time because of you know growing up knowing that well knowing that women were treated less than men and and then knowing that i was gay so it was like it was already bad enough that i was a woman now i'm gay and it wasn't me that thought it was bad it was everybody else so i grew up thinking people hate me uh, you know like knowing people felt uncomfortable around me, but not knowing if they were gonna get violent with me or ignore me. You know, I mean, it's not a level playing field when you're a freak. And I, I'm only, I'm a, I'm, I fly my freak flag with pride. So I'm, I don't say that in a derogatory way. I, I always knew, man, the rest of the world sure does have a problem with me, who I'm turning out to be. <laughs> and I, and like, I wasn't having it, but I wasn't, so, I mean, I just, I just became the most masculine, masculine female I could become because I felt like that's what I had to do to compete. Yes, well, absolutely. Not just be as good, but be better, louder, yeah. faster, harder, smarter. You know, this like, is true. This is true. There was one band in America that um, it didn't, they didn't really sort of come over to the UK that much or they, you know, they didn't sort of take off here for various reasons, which you'll know when I mention the band, called Fanny. Did they ever come into your consciousness as a young person in the 70s? Yes, they did, because those albums that my dad would get every day in our basement, along with my drum set, we literally had walls. My dad had shelves built into walls. So, I mean, when I would be bored, I would just be looking at album covers, looking at album covers. I'll never forget the first time I saw Kiss, Dressed to Kill, and I was just like, oh my God, and I would pull that and I have to I have to listen to this. And I remember seeing Fanny because they were all on the cover and I thought, what's this? Women? Yes. So I definitely, they were definitely on my radar. Yes, I think David Bowie loved them as well. So that makes it all good. <laughs> like I said, David Bowie was my first single and my first love. So did you ever have to buy a record or did you just go, actually, I'll just go in the other room and my dad will never I did know. when I started listening to punk because my dad wasn't getting those records. He was not getting <laughs> how, did your dad, how did your dad come like to punk. punk? He even said to me one time, which is really painful when you're a kid, you're never going to make it. So I hope you find something else to do because you're just, you're never going to make it. And you have no idea how hard it is and how much talent you have to have. And that was like bone crushing, like, but I know my, my parents were very much like realists. 
So I don't, I don't think he was saying it to be mean. They just were like, matter, not, you know, however their parents treated them, you know, they were doing the best they could. Um, but there wasn't a lot of hugging and coddling. And it was more about like, life is going to be hard. You better be fucking ready. <laughs> it was more like that. <laughs> God, that's quite, um, that's quite brutal, really, isn't it? For somebody who's a rock journalist, because I did an interview with Nick Cade, Kent, Nick Kent, who was the NME man. And he said that when he started writing in 1973, he said most of the journalists, because he was a young kid then, most of the journalists who'd been around were still waiting for the Beatles to reform and just kind of going on about the 60s. And he realised that was kind of gone. And he was there for punk. Were you, did you have a similar vibe when punk appeared that you thought, this is my, this is going to be my scene? Um, oh, absolutely. Because one thing that I still think is the most punk thing about punk is that I didn't need permission to do it. I wasn't waiting for someone to say I was good enough to play in a band and play. I was just going to do it because I could. I didn't care whether someone else thought it was good. I just did it. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I think when I saw what was going on in punk, that gave me permission to do it because that's what everybody was doing. It wasn't, certainly wasn't, like nobody's gonna say black flag, okay, and I don't I mean, it wasn't that they were such their musicianship was so on point. It was that what what they had to say, they were the only ones that could say it, and that was the way they said it. And it mattered more than the musicianship of yes or rush, and it moved me more at the time because it pushed right through all that shit that that that's all mainstream society wanted you to hear. Therefore, that's all you know. So I think when I started to hear punk on college radio, I was, I was like, what the fuck is this? I can do that. I do that. What is this? You know, like this is, so I mean, I already knew like, oh, that that's, that, there, there it is. That's the avenue. That's how I get there. Yes. And was there anybody, I always remember being really amazed with people like Chrissy Hines and then Polystyrene. Was there any particular band that you saw that made you think, Okay, this is this is all good. This I'm I'm ready for this now. All of them, especially <laughs> Patty Smith. Um, I saw Chrissy Hine. I had a, I had gone to England when I graduated high school. It was a present my mom gave me, and uh, I came back with a pierced nose. This was in 1981, and I had a white leather jacket that was like that lambskin that they have in England. It's very soft leather, and uh, and it was a motorcycle jacket where you can zip it up and it flaps over like that. So. We were behind the tower, which if you're a Bowie fan, Tower Theater is where he made a live album. So I went to so many shows there. So it was at that theater that uh, we were waiting um, uh, by the sound check so we could meet her. So when she came, because there was a bar across the street behind. So that's where a lot of bands all would go, you know. Have, so we were waiting for her to come from, because we were too young to go in the bar. We were waiting for her to come from the from the um bar into the back into the club and i caught her and i said oh she, you know will you sign my my jacket and she looks at me and she goes it's gonna ruin your coat and i go not for me it's not and she's like okay and she wrote chrissy hine on it and, and she was like super cool you know like i mean i the, every single one of those women that i saw joan jett i you know there, there's stuff about i in the have you let read the new lunatic book i mean is that why you want to do an interview with me or does this have well no you just came into my you know it was a slightly about it was a little bit about that but also just because it's always good to hear other people Did you read the book 
I've I've only got a PDF, which is a bit difficult to read the book. I have to say, I hate. I've got given the PDF, and they said, "Have a have a look at this," and it was like, uh, you know what PDFs are like? They're not quite like. Uh, oh, I'll read the book anyway. I haven't I haven't read the. I whole have book. a chapter, and I, I when I read it, you know, obviously I was, I I knew their interview. I mean, I knew what. Um, it's uh, I kind I mean you know. It's kind of hard. It's very hard, <laughs> but it's like, yeah, that's what happened. And, you know, you know, I mean, I, I stopped drinking for a reason. Okay. But I mean, there's still a lot of, I think I, after I read it, I thought, oh God, people are going to hate me more. But, but, but there again, you know, I'm coming from a place where everybody was against me when I was a kid. Nobody was like, oh, you're gay. Oh, that's awesome. Let's tell everybody. You know, it's like, my mom was like, what? No, you're not. No, you're going through a stage. You know what? I'm going to send you to the psychiatrist. You know, it was, nobody was embracing anything I wanted to do. Nobody was like, oh, that's great. Go for it. You know, my, you know, everybody was like, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Something's wrong with you. So I don't have the best <laughs> the best outlook on on people's perceptions of me. I only have mine, which was I'm coming through the fucking door, whether you open it or not. <laughs> and that, and that, you know, and that, I mean, it's really hard um, for people to, to know, like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know how to explain myself other than, you know, <laughs> I am who I am. And, and I, 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 I loathe dishonesty in people. I mean, just please be honest with me. I grew up in Philly. You know, if someone says, fuck you, Becky, that's the beginning of a conversation to figure out what's wrong. That's not, ooh, oh my God, they said, fuck you. You know, like, you know, I mean, especially out here in LA, you know, I've been here since 97, but and not all of California is like that. But I mean, people will talk about you behind your back, but not to your face. Right. You know, and, and that is, just, to me, that's just like, I, I would say to people, you might hear, I said, yeah, I'm talking shit right now about that person. Guarantee you, I already said it to them. So, you know, I go, I have no shame about what I'm talking, you know, it's like, and I would appreciate it when people would just come to me and let me know, um, you know, if, if, you know, if you care enough about someone to move forward in, in a relationship, because whether you're fucking somebody or not, everybody has relationships. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to treat people differently based on the category I put them in, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to honesty. I mean, I just don't want to waste my fucking time on somebody that would bullshit me. There are plenty of people who don't know. I, I had a lot of problems with people when I was young where I immediately knew they were gay, immediately. And they would jump on me and start a fight with me because I'd be sarcastic and say something. You know, and they were fighting me because they were mad that I said they were a dyke or something. Later on, I mean, 20 years later, these people were like, oh, yeah, I was gay. And I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so I know there's some people who are, they're as about as honest as they can be at the moment, you know, and I'm pretty fluid, so I can change, but that's, but I'll keep it, you know, I mean, I could be really mad at someone, but I guarantee within three or four hours, if I really like you, I'm probably going to be feeling bad and figuring out, well, how we, how do we get past that? So yes. I don't know if that make any sense to you as how the kind of person I am. No, that's absolutely fine. Um, so just briefly, how long were you in? Was it this just a summer gig? I mean, this is a bit. <laughs> in 1981 in England? Yeah. No, I graduated high school and my mom to incentive for me to graduate said, I will pay for your trip and you can go to, to, to London and Europe and get a URL pass and travel around. So me and the singer from the band I was in at the time, The Excuses, we did that. And um, we went to Spain and 
it was it was right. Oh God, I think it was when we bombed like Libyan. We we America did something fucked up to Libya. So there were like in Spain, especially there were you know they're military with machine guns everywhere but posters everywhere like fuck america you know like not fuck but you know what i mean like a bad america bad bad so we would walk around and put on our fake english accents like i'm not fucking american fuck you no fucking they you know so i mean it was like <laughs> we didn't want you know but i and then in york england is where i got my nose pierced in like a beauty shop um Cause I always knew I wanted my nose pierced. I don't know. I must have seen a dragon that had a pier. I I don't. Who knows what I saw when I was little? That, Ooh, I want that. I want that. Or Mr. Not Mr. T. He came along after, but but somebody in some film that I just thought, oh, that's. I have to have those Hercules wristbands, and I have to have a nose ring. That that you know. Yes, absolutely. This that's is where true. I got it done. It was with a gun, and it was. So I came back in 1981. Now I had a pierced nose. My mom was just like, oh my, what have I done? Nice, nice. When did you get your first tattoo, by the way? When I turned 18 and it's, uh, oh, it's here and it says JJ for Joan Jett and it's a black heart on fire. And through it in the banner, it says wreck. God, that's, that's lasted well, actually. It hasn't faded at all. Well, it has, but you, but you know, but you're oh. right. I've seen worse. I've seen worse. So, what you you then form a band, don't you? Called is it Technophere? Well, I've been in a lot of bands, but that um, yeah, I was in a band called Technophere, which was with well, actually, before that, I was in a band with two English guys that was called Diatribe, and um, I still have the cassette tape, which I just put on MP3. Excellent. And, and um. You know, it sounds like UB40. And I think, God, my drumming was so good. Because I'm like, you know, and, and, and they're singing like very, it's very like UB40 style. I put it on and my girlfriend will be like, oh my God. You know, like, so I have, I'm, luckily I have recordings from some of the things that I did that I still have. And I listen to them and I'm like, wow. Impressed, impressed. Cool. Because in, in the UK, you know, we had the punk scene and I suppose in a way America had a punk scene in various other places. But then there was the post-punk world of, you know, Gang of Four, Magazine, Public Image Limited, um, Wire. And then there was the kind of the indie sound, which was this, you know, like from 83 to 87 was like indie pop. You know, we had the Smiths and there was other bands like the Go-Betweens and uh, they're from Australia, and the June Brides, and th that sound from Australia called the uh, Orange Juice as well. There was the, these kind of bands. Were you influenced at all by that kind of wave of jingly-jangly music, or did it make you want to throw up? <laughs> I, oh, I remember when The Cure came out with the album where every single song was a hit. Which one was that? Um, Which band? Cure the cure, and the I mean cure. every single fucking song was a hit. Um, if you name the name of the album, I'll say, oh yeah, that's it. But I mean, in that, in America at least, on the radio, you know what happened here was like the Clash became like a, a um, like the same level as Bruce Springsteen. So yes. I mean, that was kind of like the fashion. Like everybody that gave us shit for dressing punk before now, like Macy's was trying to copy it. You know, I mean, it was just like a weird. Uh, so I think, if anything, you, we we kind of more went more underground, like 
like true punk rock. I think it just went more underground. It didn't, it, had, it, had, it really had nothing to do with the level that like say The Clash was on anymore. And I'm not saying anything bad about The Clash. I'm just, that's what happened. So I think The Cure was still one of those bands where not everybody knew. You might know who The Clash is, but you don't know who The Cure is. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It was like, yes. kind of, I, and I know it's different in, in, in England with how you do your music um, scene. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, you know, I, I liked that Cure record when it came out. I, the place I was working at at the time when I was, and, and Technofear, we probably, do you know Meg Lee Chin, who yes. is in London? She yes. played in the face. Oh, I played in two different bands with her. I was in Technofear with her. That music kind of probably does sound like, when, you know, I'm, I'm playing some of the songs for the band that I have now because I'm going to do a couple of them in hopes that Meg will come and sing with us. If, and and um and so uh, when I played them the songs, you know, one of my friends said, "Oh, it's kind of like the Cure and Van Halen," and I was like, "Oh my god, great!" <laughs> you know, or or like that that kind of weird like, and I'm like, "Oh well, pff, two of my big two of my big influences at that time or whatever," you know. Yes, and absolutely. Our part on the spectrum too. <laughs> That's quite something. So with Technofear, you had Meg, and then you also had Joe Goldring as well, didn't you? And yourself. Oh God, yeah, Joe is great. Joe is just learning how to play guitar, and so, oh, have you heard the song "Rain"? Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask Meg if it's okay, and I'm gonna send you, um, via messenger, a song called "Rain" that that we did. Me, her, Joe, and um, Pete played bass. And it's probably the first song we wrote with Meg because we were a band and then I met Meg and I knew she was talented and could play keyboard, but she was real quirky, her character. So I would say, well, why don't, why don't you just come and bring your keyboard? I don't care if you rehearse, you can just come. I know you're really good. You can just come and play. And there, and Jerry Finelli did that one or one or two times too. She's another incredible keyboard player. Um, but Meg would do that, but she would not look at the audience. She would look only at like us. And so people were like really frustrated. So, um, but I mean, it was really weird. We had to like, we would play out like that until we could actually get her to turn around and like not be so self-conscious and look at everybody because they wanted her to, like they wanted, I mean, it was kind of cute and weird, but it was also like probably really frustrating for the audience just to be like, you know, like she literally couldn't though. She was really shy. Not, oh, yeah. He is an incredible songwriter and the talent of her. I asked Joe, like, how in the fuck? Because I was like, well, I, that's one song I wouldn't even try to cover with my band right now unless Joe came and played guitar on it. Because the guitar is so, it's like definitely like a Susie and the Banshees guitar sound. And, and I said to him, like, recently, I'm like, well, I, I'm going to try and do this song and that song. I go, but I'm not even going to try and do Rain. And I go, you sound like, and he goes, oh, that's because I didn't know how to play. And that's exactly who I was trying to sound like, probably. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm a big fan of rookies doing stuff and they've never been taught because they're going to do stuff they don't know you're not supposed to do. And that, that's when you find something that's interesting. Gene, yes, absolutely. And then after Technofear, why did that sort of, why did that sort of fold and not sort of continue? Because I moved to Europe because I, it was really because my first love, uh, the relationship had ended, my, totally my fault. And um, I think I realized when she wasn't coming back for real, that uh, she was gonna have a baby. 
San Francisco is a small fucking town. <laughs> and I and I was like, okay, I'm gonna go. So I went to I wanted to play in a band in Europe. I wanted to I, I just wanted to play drums and go somewhere else and get an opportunity to play drums somewhere else. So I went to London and I had connections of people that helped me with a place to stay and I would break into squats and and you know this was January. It was so fucking cold. Yes. Um, and um so, you know, I meet other punks and they'd say, oh, yeah, this is what we do, or, you know, um, and it was me and Meg. And then Meg stayed in London when I went to, I, well, this is funny. A girlfriend's brother was dating uh, Mark White of ABC. And so Mark White of ABC befriended me and took me to clubs with him. And I, where Lee Bowery had some clubs back then. Yes, and he'd take me out, whatever his club. And I remember seeing Boy George, and I would just be sitting there, like, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. I mean, I was just like, nobody will ever believe that I'm at a club dancing two feet away from because at the time he was the biggest fucking thing. So yes. I mean, my whole life has been like, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> and like the people that you know would be like, this is fucking great. You know, they're nowhere around, so you're just. You're just enjoying, but there's always that downside because, God, this is great, but this would be even, you know, it's kind of been the story of my fucking life. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having a great time, but no one to enjoy it with. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) The goal is to have so much money, I can just be like, this is what I'm doing. I'm sending you a plane ticket. Let's go. Oh, you need to bring your kid? There's a plane ticket for them, too. Come on. So how long did you stay in London and then go into Europe? Or- well, I mean, I stayed with them, um, you know, connections of theirs. And Oh, I know one of my friends. And well, I knew a lot of Europeans in San Francisco. I had a connection. That's how I got into. I liked motorcycles, but that's how I got into Italian motorcycles. I had friends from Switzerland. He had a Lamber, uh, a La Verda. Um, rest in peace. His name was Otmar. He actually ran the Rota Fabrique in Switzerland in Zurich, if you know that, that the Red Factory, it's a big club, they had a restaurant, they had a bar, they had a venue, they had a bookstore. I mean, it's the coolest fucking thing. It was a compound on this lake. Mm. And, um, and he, you know, Faith No More used to rehearse in the bar that I worked at in San Francisco. So, I mean, anyways, these are people that were in my life and inspired me in so many ways. So there were also Belgians that I met. So when we went to Europe, they were like, well, we know tons of people, you know, do you want to go? So somehow they connected me with the Belgian band La Muerte, their friends that needed a drummer. They were on their way on a ferry over to London to do a show with, oh my God, something to do with, with um, not Bauhaus, but something to do with one of those off bands. Like, I don't know if it was Tones on Tail, but, and they were playing with the Leather Nun. Do you know the band, the Leather Nun oh, from Sweden? Cool. Never none, Jesus crazy. So did it feature Pete Murphy or Mick Kahn from... No, but they had something to do with bringing them over because the band was called La Muerte. They already had a record. I think he wanted to fuck our singer. God right. forgive me for saying that. Mark was gorgeous, a statue. I think that's why he plays with a sack over his face now. You know, because they're still playing. You know, they're that, that goth, oh, like super fast, industrial, like badass, like rock and roll. But when they play now, Mark always has like this crazy sack over his head. You know, like they're like into that horror, th- horror show, like right. Americana, spaghetti, Western shit, you know. 
that's like their whole thing. So, but I know, I think that was what was really going on. I think there was some kind of thing like where they were like fascinated because Marcus chiseled, gorgeous, <laughs> gorgeous. <laughs> what I heard this might not be true. That's what I heard back then because people didn't talk about Guys never talk about, they didn't, you know, they would never admit that shit, you know, but I was kind of trying to figure out what they were doing there too. You know, how'd you get that great gig? What's going on? You know, like, that's how I ended up living in, in La Muerte because I auditioned for them and they were like, fuck, okay. So I did a record with them. Right, blimey. A lot of shows. So that was like 85, 86. Yes, which is coming to an interesting point of music because because then 87 comes along. In the UK, the Smiths break up and indie pop just basically dies. Ecstasy appears, which kind of creates a new musical genre with people like the Happy Mondays, Primal Scream, Stone Roses and all those people, Soup Dragons. And then you then you form the Lunar Chicks. Oh, no, no, no. I did not form the Lunar Chicks. Well, you didn't put them, but that's the... the they, um... They already, I'm going to move around here. I'm hungry. I'm going to make some food. You don't mind, do you? No, that's fine. Here's my drums, by the way. Uh... Oh, nice. Nice hat. Okay. So anyways, um, when I got back to England, because I didn't stay in Belgium, because I totally realized that they weren't going to, um, they were never probably going to go to, to America, at least not any time. They were really big over there. So I get it. Why go? <laughs> if you don't have to go anywhere, why go anywhere, right? Yes. Uh, but I, I, I realized, oh my God, I can't get a car, I can't drive, I can't, I can't get my hustle on here to, to move above a certain place, you know, because I didn't grow up there, so I didn't know how to, you know, do my whatever you got to do, your hustle. I couldn't work without a visa, and I, we weren't really making any money, so that's how I ended up coming back. Then I ended up being in New York instead of San Francisco because I had to um, send my, my drums back and all my stuff via uh, a slow boat because <laughs> yes. it was a lot less expensive so that's how i ended up back in the east coast where i was from so when i was there uh, some friends from belgium that lived in new york that were on the belgian label but a new york band they knew the lunatics the lunatics had been together they were looking for a female drummer because without a female drummer that the label approved they would not get signed and this was their first attempt at a band and they did it because they were friends who wanted to have a band Essentially, Gina, Theo, and Squid, Sydney, and of course, Cindy is original. Um, uh, that they had the band, they needed to, a drummer that the record label Blast First would approve of before they would sign them. And that's when I came into the picture. And the funny thing is, in, in the book, too, I mean, listen, I had to audition for the Lunatics, but before I auditioned, Chip auditioned. And she didn't want to be in the band because she didn't think they'd be it. She didn't get it. She didn't see what, what I saw, which was like, oh my God, they're fucking bad. They're going to be great. Like, I, I knew they weren't musically great yet, but they were getting their shit together. And, and it was like, oh my God, they have a vision. And it really isn't just about the music. It's, it's a big vision. I, I could see it through their eyes. Yes. But so I think it's really funny that, like, she didn't get interested in playing with them until I was out of the picture. But I'm the one who put them on the map. So... You know, hey. There you go. You can take that away from me. No, and what? And I mean, one band that I can remember sort of having a big impact was um, Girls School. Did you sort of come across Girls oh, School? I love Girls School. They were just another band that I loved and respected, but there's nothing like I didn't try to play. I, I'm not as big of a metal fan as I am like Kiss, kind of rock and roll, first album, rock and roll, dirty rock and roll. Not so much metal, thrash. 
Um, I, I did like hardcore, like minor threat style. And I still, I have a song in my new band that's definitely like, like fast as fuck. It's, it's called Fuck You. <laughs> <laughs> I think about what I know. <laughs> yes. So when, so you were signed to Blast First, which was kind of a hip label at that time, wasn't it? Because it oh, yeah, and they had money. So our first trip over to England, we had all press. We had everything, nice hotels. They hooked it up. But our next trip over there without their money was different. <laughs> but I, I was like, in the beginning, I was like, this never happens. I've been in so many fucking bands, you guys. Because they, I think that they just thought that that's what it's like all the time. And I was like, fuck no. <laughs> you know, like, this never happens. You know how many bands I was in? <laughs> Nobody gives a shit, you know? <laughs> yes, this is also very true, isn't it? The, the, the problem. So with this kind of fantastic 12, this seven-inch single, was this the re first recording you did with the band? Um, well, thank God I read the book, so I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they had... They had the record recorded with Theo's, I think Theo's boyfriend was their drummer. Um, they had had other girl drummers, but no one that the label ap approved of. So that was, that was a big deal for them to find one. And I, I just think it's hysterical that, that Chip had her chance before me. And, you know, <laughs> it's funny, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, like, okay. Cause I mean, yeah, I don't, okay. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Um, <laughs> What did we go back to the question? I got it off track. Yeah. So, so with this, the, the, the single, which is this, this classic one, I just wondered if that was your first recording um, with the band. Well, they already had the songs and I believe they had drum tracks in place and I had to come down and come in and just put the, my drums into the mix and follow like the, the basic drum tracks. So it wasn't, so yeah, I mean, I, that's me playing and that's me, but it wasn't like I wrote the songs with them. Binge and Purge, we actually wrote the songs together. Yes. I think they hate that record, as a matter of fact. I think they don't like either of those records, whereas I think they're fucking great. I, I, because I said something like, hey, if you guys ever want to play those two records, I would be totally down. And, you know, I think Sydney like laughed and was like, we would never play those records. And I was just like, she's like, we couldn't even play yet. And I was just like, they're fucking great. Okay, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did you, um, at that stage, did you feel like you were on some sort of musical zeitgeist? Because there had been the sort of the rise of that kind of thrash period with people like Husker Du and the Butthole Surfers and Big Black. And then obviously Sonic Youth were these kind of gods that we all loved at that time. And then, you know, the Lunar Chicks were there as well. Did it feel like there was kind of part of a, a scene that you were sort of at the right place at the right time? Because you must realise that in music, it's a lot about timing, isn't it? Um, yes. And I think also, like, I kind of think I knew. Um, I actually had played in an all-girl band. I say that I hadn't, but I actually had played in an all-girl band, I think when I was seven, 16, and it was called Bondage, and we did covers, like Sex Pistol covers or Who cover, like Can't Explain, shit like that. But when I didn't want to play in the band anymore and I went to be in another mat, the girls were like, really, like, fuck you then. We don't want to even know you. And I think that made me feel so that I don't, I think I purposely was like, I, I not, not that I, I didn't, I just played with whoever, but at the same time, I think I was like, oh, I'm not playing with girls again. God, they're so mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I, don't, I don't think it was a conscious decision. There were, there just weren't that many 
uh, compared to guy musicians that, that there were to play with all the time. So I, I don't think it was conscious like I was trying to, but I, but I know it was conscious when I heard about the Lunachicks that I had, I had just heard about L7 and seen them and was like, oh my God, you know, but I, I'm, I'm not surprised that girls can play the instruments. So I wasn't like, you know, I was just like, awesome, more women are playing. This is fucking great, you know. But when I heard about the Lunachicks, I thought, fine, I'm going to cash in. I'm going for it, you know. <laughs> fine, I'll play with an all-girl band again. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time, you know. So, I mean, yes, in a way, I felt like it was my time because of, then I also felt like, well, they're getting all these opportunities. And, of course, they needed a drummer like me to get signed because I brought together, I feel like I was the glue that, whereas they had they were they were going somewhere and they had the pieces but they weren't quite together yet but people could see something's going on when i came in i the way i played was like glue that made it all work and came at you like a wall of fucking sound so then people were like what the fuck is you know like whatever you know whatever was like wow this is cool hmm was oh shit (laughs) but it's interesting because i I spoke to a lot of drummer wow like uh oh And also, the one thing I've I've kind of come across with with a lot of drummers is the, the there's a bit of a big thing, and I don't know how you cope with it. The click track. What was your relationship with the click track? Did I hate you... the fucking click track, but but if I have to do it, I will. But I I'm just I like I feel like um, well that's part of the punk rock attitude I have. You know, like shit isn't perfect. You know what? Perfection is a fucking mistake. Hope I hope you make one. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I I I, I don't play. You know, people, if like I've tried to be in some cover bands and it's just like not, you know, because people are like, oh, there's a signature drum hit right there. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm like, I'm Becky Reck playing Leonard Skinner. I'm not trying to sound like or be like that. I can't play exactly like anybody else but me. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I can play the song and it's going to be right. I'm not going to. fuck it up i know how the song goes but I, but don't ask me to play exactly like so why would i want to do that i play like me yes and did you i mean i did an interview with um hunt sales who was in um oeg pops band and did lust for life and also david bowie's tin machine i mean he he had sort of quite a few drum teachers and um people giving him lessons and all that kind of stuff did you ever sort of go did you ever have to have sort of or not have to but did you have sort of any tuition or kind of mentors who gave you some top tips? I had lessons I had lessons when I was like um from third grade but that was like orchestra school orchestra and then in junior high marching band and then I had no girls it's not time to eat my dogs (laughs) <laughs> nice dogs okay I, just got the uh, I, I had a private teacher too his name was Benjamin Piercy and he was a, a, he also played xylophone in a jazz band that was really his thing but he was my teacher and we'd sit there I'd be at the snare drum and I would hold the sticks you know the correct way you know it was like that with the yeah and and I would be playing and he, he would I'll show you I'd be playing and he would come with his hand boom and knock my sticks flying out of my hand and be screaming at me, you're not playing with your wrist hold on and play, you know because you tend to want to go like that instead of like that so he really put that in me like you know but he was great I had I definitely had lessons but you know but that's what I like. I don't know. I mean, I just feel like I knew I wanted to play the drums. I, I do think I have a gift and it's not that I'm like a great, such a great drummer. It's just, that's how I meditate. You know, I, mean, I was at rehearsal the other night and we were trying to work on a part 
and I was just playing, playing, playing. I think it's really fast too. Like, and I and I kept my I keep my eyes. Sometimes I don't do any. I don't know what I'm doing, but my eyes were closed, and I'm super into it. And then like all of a sudden they, they stopped playing. He's like, I was trying to show you that part, but your eyes are closed. And I was like, Oh, dude, you know I'm meditating, right? And he goes, Yeah. And he's like laughing because my whole thing is like I don't care if people are watching or not. We would be doing this because <laughs> we're trying to catch the spirit. Literally, when you catch that spirit and you're doing something with, and everyone's like fuck yeah that's that's all it's about like you know i like playing because when i know that i'm able to do that with people then then you can share that with people and that's the shit right there so i i don't think like i don't think i'm the greatest drummer i know that i'm not i don't really practice and but when i get behind there if i like what i hear and i like it oh my god just something just comes out like and I, it's like a such a great channel for like angst because i am so, I mean, I, I read something where it's like, if, if you're paying attention, you're fucking angry. Not just angry, you're enraged at some of the shit that goes on in this world. Like, I can't believe as a chef, it's, it's illegal. It's not legal. It's a law that I can't get paid as much as a man. Until we pass the Equal Rights Amendment, which changes that and makes me equal, that is so fucked up. How am I I'm not going to be angry? And, you know, I mean... If you're paying attention to what's going on, I don't see how people aren't angry. For me, as angry as I get, playing the drums is a fucking gift. I get to beat the shit out of something constructively. And so all that energy, all that, oh my God, goes into something and I get it out of me. And, and that's why I have one, a song that's called Fuck You, you know, or like, or my lunatic song, Super Strong, you know, like that I'm singing about my angst. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, this is this is um, this is completely understandable. So, what was your memory of your the, you know going into the studio for the first album? Was that because um, because most bands you know that I've done you know they have a five year narrative, you know they get together they have twelve months they're having a nice time, and in this country you know we have this D D DJ called John Peel that would often give people that kind of first step up, and then we have the music papers like the NME Sounds Melody Maker. I mean, and that honeymoon period of the first album is quite nice. Was what was your experience at this stage like? Um, they, it was just like everything was together and they were just waiting. I'm sorry, I'm so fucking hungry. Everything is together and they had to do certain things to get the album released and they knew they, were, they had a tour, a, a tour of, of, of England opening for Dinosaur Jr. was dangled in front of our, our faces. So it was like, let's get, let's get this done so we can go do that. So I don't, I think I, I, they say in the book that I was very professional. I went in there and, and that they were kind of like, holy shit, you know, she knows what's up. Cause I had been in studios before and I don't really know anything about the board and how to move dials. So I trust whoever's behind the board. My drums could have definitely sounded better. Um, but the book, if you read the book, they have a chapter about making the second record because for them, and it's called Binge in Purgatory. So and that's when I was really, really getting into heroin and really becoming um, just the worst I could possibly be. And I mean, any of my bad traits were just getting magnified. Right. But the first album, things still good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I started fucking up shows, though, because I was high. Right. You know? Yes. Was that, was that sort of, did that, was that sort of started to happen in the late 80s or was it early 90s? Oh. Um, 
Well, like I, when I went into the studio, all their shit was recorded for the first album. I literally just put my drums to it. I wasn't in the studio with them. The second place, well, like I said, by that time, I think the wind in their sails came out a little bit because they weren't getting that royal treatment anymore like they were getting in the beginning because they didn't have Blast First behind them or money. So I think everything was a little more like the reality of like, yeah, now this, for me, it was like, now this is more familiar. You know, you're begging for this or that, or you can't get a gig or you can't do this. Um, but, but I mean, in this, they hated it. I, I don't even, you know, I was so fucked up. I really, I can, I can sort of remember when we recorded um, a Buzzcocks cover song, Noise and Noise and Promises. It's on, a, it's, it's very rare, but it's on a single, probably in English. Yes, um, it's, and I think uh, Lenny Lenny K. I think produced it, maybe. Noise, noise. But I mean, I sort of remember when we were recording that. That was really fun because we were making all these noises and doing stuff, and I didn't get it. I could not get the backup right, and it and they kept it in there. Once I'm just like, oh shit, you know, like. But it was really fun. But they they don't think it. They think it was. Uh, like I said, I read the book and I was like, oh, that's what they thought. I had no fucking idea. I just knew they didn't like me. Yes, not good. So then you left the band, or you you parted waves in '92. They fired me. I quit. Whatever. I don't know. Doesn't matter. But then you move. And then what happens then for the for the next period? Well, they they uh, went on to go to Australia and Japan with ship, and um, I was a heroin junkie strung out for eight years. That's what happened to me. I ended up that, in a homeless shelter. In that, was the that was the 90s. God. Did you hit, did you keep your drum kit or did you have to sort of, did you just lose everything? If it wasn't for Shauna Hall, who's one of the original members of Four Non Blondes, she, she was a friend to me always, even at my worst. She took my drums. I have two drum kits now, but the one that I showed you, she took that. I wouldn't give it back to me because she knew I was going to pawn it. So when right. I got sober, she gave it back to me. And I still have that kit today. Now that's a fucking friend. That is a friend. I would, uh, yes, we all need that friend, don't we? So then how did you manage to hit such a bottom? How did you sort of come out of that? What, what was the kind of catalyst? Uh, well, the recovery program, a 12, you know, I had friends in LA. Well, I had met acquaintances. I met them in New York and they were like, oh, we, we would love for Becky to be our drummer if, if she wants to come to LA. But at the time I was in a homeless shelter and they were like, we're not gonna work with her unless she gets clean. But they were people that would help me because they were doing it and they were already involved in that. Yes. So I, I, that's kind of what happened. I just, I started to hang around with people that, um, that uh, knew a lot about recovery and, and they just kept dragging me along with them wherever they went. Yes, because I talked, did an interview with Paul Ryder who was in the Happy Mondays and still is, I suppose. But he said he went to three, 13 rehabs and then he had to move to LA because um, he realized that Manchester was never gonna do it for him. Did you have many relapses during that time? Yeah, but yeah. Like I would get 90 days, I'd relapse, I'd get, I think someone said to me one time, you know, you know exactly what's going to happen if you get high tomorrow, smoke pot or drink a beer or shoot heroin. 
but you have no idea what will happen if you don't. And I was like, oh my God. Well, I, that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you're right, I don't know. And I, I like, I don't know, it was, a, it was some sort of challenge to my ego that was like, let's do it. Oh yeah, I don't know. And that really, like there are certain things I might've heard a million times, but I heard that that day, you know? Bloody hell. That's and I think staying in LA is a big deal. I agree with that fellow. Um, LA, I didn't have the kind of using history I have in New York or Philadelphia or San Francisco. So it was kind of like, I, it, I wouldn't fall into any routine because I didn't have one here. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And that was it. 2000, you were clean. And then what, what's your musical direction after that? Because I know you're in a band called Dirty Cakes now, but what was before Dirty oh, I'm Cakes? Not, I, no, I'm not now. I'm in a fucking legal battle with them. Bastards. I, I wouldn't even say their name on this podcast. No, I won't. Sorry. It just, I just sort of read that you were in this band. Okay, we won't mention that. No, but I'm not because after, you know, I wrote one song with them in 19 months, but I recorded a lot of their old stuff that was already recorded and already copywritten because I made it sound more like Black Flag instead of a Nirvana cover band. I brought that realness to it. And that's what they wanted me to do. And that's why they asked me to play. And um, I don't think that they like that the way I play is the way I am. And if you like the way I play, but you don't want to deal with me, oh, well, you're fucking going to have a problem then because, you know, like, I'm not, I don't play that way because I'm not like really affected by a lot of things. And, and I'm, so, I mean, I found out they were doing stuff that I told them not to do that was sexist, that I knew I thought was sexist. I had wanted an agreement in writing from the get-go because I would have done anything to make us successful. I give 110% to anything that I put my name to. And um, I, like, I feel like, well, I don't care what, what they do now because I don't think they'll be successful without me. That's how, much, that's how hard I know I would have worked. You know what I mean? Yes. But at some point when they would not respect me enough to give me an agreement in writing, and I started to realize all this other stuff, it's just like all of a sudden I connected all the dots. So in October of 2020, I was like, I'm done. I want you to give me an agreement and I want the masters to my song, Awesome and Creepy. And I want to get paid for what I did already because they had me in videos on every social platform. And I'm not talking about a video of fans holding up a camera. I'm talking about we would play live and they would pay people to video, a professional videographer to video every show. Well, shit, I might die next year. That shit's going to be more valuable the minute I die. And I did it for you for nothing. And you didn't even respect me enough to give me an agreement in writing when we were in a business together. Then fuck all that woke. Oh, I'm woke. You know, I care about the fuck you do. I'm in your own backyard. Like, hello, do you respect me enough to give me that fucking agreement already? Just something in writing so I know have some clarity on what this means even in the long term. You know, like, I wanted to be a third equal member of that band from the onset of me joining because they'd been together for five years before me on paper. I mm -hmm. wanted to see that. I wanted to know what it meant. I wanted to know why I was giving everything to this band. And so in the end, when they weren't going to do it, I just said, okay, pay me as a hired gun. That, that's exactly how you use me. Pay me for the gigs and pay me for the recordings. And that's it. And I want my song. Well, you know what? They came back and said the only thing they would give me in a leaving member agreement, now they're going to put something in writing, was that I could have the rights to my own song, the masters to my own song. That's it. They put zero value. Well, if you don't value it, take it all down. I want it taken down anyways until we reach an agreement. Nope, they wouldn't. They haven't. 
and I'm in a lawsuit with, I'm suing them for a hundred thousand dollars. And you know, they're not backing down. And my lawyers are like, well, they're not right. You didn't sign anything. You know, you're the only one who could own your fucking publicity. It's you. So if they have shit on the internet or anywhere where it's a reason to make them money, that's fucking copyright infringement. Yes, absolutely. No, I know because I did the lunatic book. They didn't even talk to me until I signed that fucking release. So I'm saying, how the fuck do these guys get away with it? You know? Oh, oh, well, they're saying some shit like, oh, you, it's a venture business. It's like, not when I wanted a contract. It's not. You know, it's what the fuck, fuck you. You know, like, there's no way they can look me in the eye and say, you're going to tell me you didn't know I wanted an agreement in a writing from the beginning. There's, that would, they would, if they look me in the eye and tell me it's a straight up fucking lie, but that is what they're saying. They're just saying it through their lawyers, which forced me to have to get a lawyer. So now that I have one, they don't, now what they're doing, I mean, we're suing them now because every other avenue we tried to take to settle it, they were like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Oh yeah, you think I'm worth zero? You think Becky Wreck, the brand is zero? Okay, dude, I'm not backing down. Fuck that. And I mean, it's happened to me a million times, but when you're a junkie, it's happened to every fucking drummer I know. But you know what? This is about me as a woman, me as an older person, me as a queer, and but mostly me as a drummer and knowing my motherfucking value. And so for someone to be like, it's zero, oh, I got a problem. And I haven't said anything yet, which is why you didn't even know, because I'm letting my lawyers talk. But the day that I can come out and say this, they will lose so many motherfucking fans because <laughs> this is the real deal. This is how people treat other people. They have money. You know what? That motherfucker made more money when Trump was in office than he has in his whole life. And he already had motherfucking trust fund money. Okay. The other guy has a record label. He's always going to make money. Guess who's going to own the masters? Him. I never even knew that. Why would I agree for you to own the masters to a song I wrote? That's some shady ass fucking shit. You know what I'm saying? So these dudes, like you're building a house and you're buying a million guitars and sports betting and playing uh, the stock market. Guess what I'm buying? A fucking gun. Because I'm so afraid of the America I'm in. And I got these two assholes who say I'm worth zero. Fuck that shit. Yes. Well, actually, I just went public with all that. And you know what? Good. It's in England. Good. You know what? That's who dirty cakes are. That's why you're getting sued, motherfucker. Because you're not going to tell this queer, this woman, this drummer that I have zero value. But at the same time, you got my fucking face and my shit on every social platform. Man, fuck you. Not you, Dave. <laughs> Thanks. I'm glad. I'm glad we cleared that one up. Um... I, I mean, that's for real. Like, I, I'm, fi- I'm going to be 58 in a couple weeks. You think that's how I should be treated? Everything I did to stay true to myself and my fucking craft and punk rock? Nah, fuck that. Yes, absolutely. So just on on a couple of things, just going slightly back there. Um, yes, the book, the Lunar Chick book, which is uh, which has just come out. Keeping it bright and breezy here. Um, so what what was that that process? <laughs> <laughs> Light and freezing, yeah, man. <laughs> oh, we can laugh about it now. Um, oh, back in the fridge. That, that deserves a, a Coca-Cola to be cracked open. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good combination. Um, yeah, so so when when did you find out that the, there were going to be a book on the Lunatics? Because let's face it, in the last couple of years, we've seen books and films on just everything from the last 
30 plus years or 25 to 30 years. Suddenly everyone's re-evaluating the past. There's films on the on the slits, the dolly mixtures, the go-betweens, the chills. There's been books on just about every sort of scene that happened during the 80s and 90s. And then The Lunar Chicks has got a book out as well. So was that was that something that you thought good idea when you heard about it? Fucking thumbs up. <laughs> yes. Oh, come back. Oh, you know get, get the I, tissue. I, I know why L7 made their film. And it, I, mean, I had a conversation with Danita. It's pretty much like, and I have nothing to do with the book, but I, I am so proud of the girls for doing it. Because if we don't tell what happened, nobody else is. You think guys that have money are walking around wondering what it was like for women in punk rock in the 80s and 90s? No, they don't give a shit. No gives a shit other women. Yes. Well, a lot I, of them grew up that are in power now and in positions are fans and they make shit happen they make shit happen you know what i'm saying yes ab no absolutely i did a i did an interview it was about the nightingales and the guy called Stuart lee who kind of helped get the film done and narrated it and told the story he just you know he said basically the same thing is that now that you know people have got the you know the access and they've had the networks they can make these films, you know, and um, know how to how to put it together. So there's there's kind of a lot of films on sort of indie bands from the seventies and eighties that have come out recently. So did you did you have a a kind of get together with the band at all? No, I was um, in the book. I think they the Gene Fury sent me questions. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean I talked to Squid. Uh, probably more than anybody else did, any, more than anybody else uh, lately. Um, maybe always. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I haven't been in, like, we did a, a, a Vans commercial where there were billboards in the subway in New York. This was in 2018. I got paid for that. It's a picture of us playing live in CBGB's in, like, 1989. It's just a wild shot, and... So, uh, but, and they were all there, like they were all, it was also on a giant side of a building and the three of them are in front of it. And I would have loved to have gone, but I think that I thought the campaign was going to come out here, but it never did. I think it was just for New York. Right. I mean, I was like, oh shit, but I was working and doing my thing. So it's, it wasn't something I could just, you know, oh, I, I have to go, do, I can go do this right now. Yes. And, and the interesting thing with the Lunar Chicks, and obviously this happens in life, everybody went on to do, um, Kind of interest and slightly diverse things. So, did what did you what did your sort of career? Where did your career take you apart from drumming and being in bands? What, where did my what career? You know, for the last twenty years, what else was kind of happening for you? Well, when I was in the homeless shelter, and I had an opportunity, and and I did try to put, you know stay sober and play with a band, and um, I, I know at the time my shift was more about like, I don't want to be homeless again, so I'm going to do whatever I have to do to pay my rent and keep an apartment and become a productive member of society. And the sex, drugs, and rock and roll was like, they were all so interconnected mm. that I kind of stepped away from playing for a while and just focused on work. Um, and over the years, I, I would take it, I would go back to it, but it was never my priority um, until, until I... Uh, you know, I mean, it would be a priority that I would play, but it wasn't like I would stop, I would drop everything else to go do, it wasn't like that, you know, so 
um, I think that's why play, playing with Dirty Cakes again and realizing I could play just as hard and fast. I mean, let's listen. If I played a show with them, in order to move my drums, because the drums I have, the, my pork pie drums are heavy. The drums I like to play are like, you know, so I mean, I, we might, maybe they would give me $20. I would pay my friend 50 or 100 to help me move my drums. Because, and I, so I mean, why would I be doing that if there wasn't some sort of long-term, you know, but I mean, my life is still about like, wow, I can play just like I did when I was 18 or 27, but man, moving my shit, that's different. You yes. know, like, and if I hurt myself moving my shit and I can't play. So, I mean, I can't play with people that don't respect that and don't understand that, you know, you know, for you, who's maybe just starting to play rock or in the last 10 years, you know, this is, this was my whole life. This is why I had to make decisions to walk away from it, you know, but, but out of that, I became a chef. I'm a, you know, I'm at the top of my game. I'm a personal chef and, you know, right. I, I like, I like cooking. So it's good for me. I like to eat. I like to cook. It's that kind of gratification. When you play a show, when you make food, I'm in a place where I get to see the clients eat the food. So I get the feedback right away. It's just like playing a gig, you know? You can tell by people's faces if they like it or if they turn around and walk away and could care less. When you're cooking, it's, it's the same thing. So, I mean, I guess I'm a whore for that instant gratification. Well, who is it? Um, but uh, did it take a long time to sort of get to, you know, learn the trade? Because, you know, we, you know this, this is quite a complex thing and you can't have an off day, can you? You can't just go, oh, I didn't really feel like it today. With the cooking? Yeah. Well, to, you know, I always had to pay to play with bands. Most of, so, I mean, I always had to have a job. But I, I, don't, I, didn't, I started working in a cheesesteak shop in Philadelphia when I was 14. But, I mean, I think when I was in San Francisco, I worked in a place called Mama's, a lot of jobs, cooking on the line. Mostly, I really liked back then being a dishwasher because there's no pressure, other than make sure the cooks have their fucking pots and pans. You know, but I could just fuck around and get high and, you know, like, no, you know, it was like that. That's the way I wanted it, too. Because, but I would have my, like, I would have chefs that I would think, oh, look at Fast Eddie. He wrote like a Kawasaki Ninja. And, you know, they were kind of my heroes in the kitchen. Like, look at that motherfucker. You know, like, I never really thought like, oh, one day I'm going to be like Fast Eddie. But, it, but it, that is exactly kind of what happened. I just, as I got sober, I took on more responsibility. I wanted to do more. I wanted more, you know, and, and that's, and I mean, it's, it's kind of those people you know, that helped me get there because I would think about them and how they did shit. Yes, absolutely. And what's your signature? What's your sort of speciality, by the way? What do you want? Vegetarian. <laughs> Vegetarian? Well, I can make you butternut squash steaks. I can make you coconut cream scallop potatoes. Right. Um, I can make you, you know, I make great grilled vegetables. So if you're a vegetarian, I hope you like vegetables. I do um, love vegetables and grains. But I mean, you know, I, <laughs> just tell me what you want and I'll, I'll try to make it, I'll make it with love and you'll love it. Okay, there you go. That, that's good. The energy of your, of your love is, is always important in the food. So look, that means then 2021, weird decade so far. What's your next, is there any, I know you've had this issue with Dirty Cakes. Is there any other musical projects that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I have a new band. My, it's a three-piece. It's me and Blair Choder, who is, was in Betty Blowtorch, and she played with Black Savage for like three years. And um, 
I was in a band with her maybe 10 years ago or more called Be- the Be- the Blair Bitch Project. Blair Bitch. And oh. My and um I have a guy play named Mike who plays bass, but they actually, you know, in, in one song they switch, one plays guitar, one plays bass. So they, you know, um and then uh, I'm, I pretty much am singing the songs right now. But that, that doesn't have to say that way. It's just we're trying to get a few songs together for our first show on July 4th, which is a party. Yes, absolutely. And when did you find your voice singing? Did you always have a confidence to uh, sing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why, but it's much easier behind the drums because as long as I'm playing the drums... It's like, oh, you know, she knows what she's doing. So if I can sing too, that's just like icing on the cake. But when you're just singing and you're not behind the drums, that's a little more, wow, it's, it's all on me now, you know, like, <laughs> like I, I'm comfortable playing the drums. So I, I actually, we were talking about it at rehearsal because, but the thing is, it's like I, it's a volume and a something that happens when I play my drums that's spurs me on to sing i can even sing higher it's like i can play faster the louder i play i can sing higher the harder i play you know it's like it's something weird happens it's like i probably am not going to sing this i won't be singing the song the same way if i'm not playing the drums and we had felix griffin who's the drummer for dri and bat and mdc and a lot of other hardcore bands he came and jammed with us and um it was so i mean i was just singing but it was uh yeah, after I was like, oh, I have to play the drums because I sing better. I mean, it's just they go together. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can totally sit back and just play drums, which I did for Megley Chin, and I love that stuff. But I, but I, but for right now, it's a three-piece. Like I said, I want to have the band where if someone comes to town, like I have so many friends, that they could just jump on stage and play with us, and we would be able to adapt and let them do their thing. I want to be the guy, the band that shines the light on other people too, that, that really need to have some light shined on them, whether yeah. it's cooking or music. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. I, I remember in the 80s going to see this uh, Sly and Robbie, who were reggae. Oh, know, yeah. And uh, they used to sort of do this thing called the Taxi Gang, where they'd have a band, and then they would have a singer just come and do about three quarters of an hour to an hour sort of singing like Dennis Brown or Gregory Isaacs or Yellow Man, one of those Maxi Priests. But they would keep the groove going in the back while someone just did their set. And, you know, they used to be memorable nights. It was it was just great stuff. And how does your, um, I mean, because drumming is such a physical thing, how's your sort of body coping with dealing with the, the physicality of sitting there with the sticks and the kit? Well, I have this technique where... The mic is over here, and I prefer a straight stand. I don't like a boom. So when I'm playing, the mic is here. And so when I, if I'm go, I go like this, and I just do my thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think if you put the mic somewhere else, if anything is different, then that's like I probably couldn't do it. Does that make any sense? Yes, absolutely. You know, we. So we I have do. like a little thing. <laughs> <laughs> like it has to be like that. You know, like weird little. You know, when I set my drum up now to play a gig, it's like. I'm marking like it's like it's like knowing like everything is a target so I have to know where I like to hit it when how hot you know so like I I know that it's right by doing stuff like this and like okay I'm gonna hit okay you know it's it's strategic (laughs) and is it the case because it's one thing that I've noticed doing these interviews with American 
band uh, musicians is that people seem to be able to sort of form bands very quickly and create their next project in the uk people don't seem to have that fluidity so much they have a band they have that five-year narrative mostly and then it all falls apart and they don't often pick it up that quickly and they certainly don't just go from one band to another whereas your cv is is quite extraordinary and the way that you can just kind of go hey yes i was in that band then we did this now it's in that band and did that project with this musician and you play with some amazing people as well so i just wondered is that an american thing by the way well i mean i grew up jamming with people on the east coast but on the east coast most everybody has a basement <laughs> so you can play because it's naturally soundproof so when you when i when i meet people especially in la and I say like, I want to jam. I mean, I literally mean like, like if you know what the Grateful Dead does when they jam, it's like yeah. a song can be, but I mean, that isn't any, it's just a matter of like, you're enjoying playing so much that you're, that you just trust in where it's going to go. And it's, and it's just about like connecting with people and learning exactly like what, how they're going to go into something or what they do. You know, you get connected that way. Like that's how you know, you know, you start doing your own, like, I think it's chemistry and it's like, like a witch stirring a pot, like a brew, like, Ooh, we've got this, we've got that. Like who's chemistry? What's, you know, I mean, so it doesn't, to me to play an endless song, like, it's not like, Oh, that sounds horrible. It's like, no, that sounds like that's how I'll know if you can play or not. Yes. <laughs> you know, but I mean, in, in LA, everybody has their own band and their own agenda. So it's really hard to find people that would want to be, in a Becky Reck band, but that's also why the band isn't called Becky Reck. It's called Choder. It's our last names: Choder, Duran, and Reck. Blair Choder, Mike Duran, and Becky Reck. Right. That. that so that, I mean, that's... I I want to go back to like the people knowing my name because especially after this last band, like, no, nah, you know what? Like, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if anybody's gonna make money off my name, I don't even care if it's a nickel. It's going to be me, motherfucker, you know? <laughs> For anybody who wants to listen, what, what would you say, looking, looking back and, you know, I know you don't want to look back too much, but what's the best and most kind of the pride or the best thing that you feel like you've recorded, you know, the, the, the song or the album that you think, God, if anybody wants to really hear me in full swing, the pride well, I think of those bands that I told you that I still actually have, uh, that I have... Um, Recordings. I would love for you to hear that English band Diatribe. Diatribe. Uh, and then, di but we never, we never. I don't know if we released anything, um, but I have a recording that we did, like a, a real recording, and I'm, I'm like, oh my god. But and I love the stuff that I did with Meg, Techno Fear. I have recordings of that. I love. It's, it's the stuff I would have you listen to is, you know, that's probably when my belief that I was really going to become like a professional or a rock star or something was like un, un, um, impure. It was so pure that you can hear it in my playing, I think. Yes. Like, and I think somewhere along the line, maybe I didn't give as much because I, I don't know why, but, but I, but I think when I started playing again, after everything I've been through, um, man, like it's, it's almost like, being able to, to bring that control from all that different experience and bring it into to my craft, into my playing. Yes, absolutely. So, so I mean, anything I'm doing right now, but but then again, I, I, I'm somebody who will be fine playing a party and 
you know, the whole thing is like, if I go see a band and, and they do, I not make a mistake or whatever, but it's like, it, I, I almost hope it's not going to be just like the record. What's the fucking point? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I, and I mean, with, with, you know, I think, I think one of the terms of the guy and the other band, you know, that I took, it, oh, you know, we're dangerous. It's like, well, I was the dangerous thing about your fucking band. And, and, and so dangerous, I scared the shit out of you, you know, because I kept it real. When they would like release something for the 50th time, like two, you know, a song that was recorded before I even joined and call it our newest single. And I'd be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? That single, you, you know, why do you do that shit? You know, that's not even, you know, I mean, I, it's like, you know, or buying, buying that space in Google. So it looks like 200,000 people saw a video we did when that's not real either, but I didn't even know. And I was like, oh my God, 200,000 people like, and it's just like, it's just what your money can buy. It's not real, you know? And like, I am so for real that that kind of shit as a punk offends the fuck out of me. So when I found out I was in a band that was doing that shit, I was like, oh hell no, you got money for that and you can't fucking pay me and you haven't given me an agreement in writing? Hell no. You know, I mean, I, dude, it was just like the worst feeling, you know, cause I'm so real and like, you know, that's in my playing. That's why they wanted it. That's why they re-recorded songs they already had. They never sounded that badass before. So, I mean, I'm the person that made them sound like that. And now, oh, you you put no price on it. Fuck me. Oh, really? Yes. No, that's not. That's if anything's not... dangerous about rock and roll, it's people like me. When we don't get the respect we deserve just for still being there and keeping the faith. Yo, that's 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 important. I mean, just I mean, just two things. How did you cope with last year's lockdown as a sort of an artist, and also with your career, and not you know your your sort of yeah share. That, that's when it really hit me that this band had no interest in re actually writing, making material with me, which is they had a million other things going on, you know, hiding behind. Oh, it's a pandemic. It's it's like I know people that made a double album during that fucking pandemic you know what i mean like don't give me that fucking bullshit you know we went and made a video with uh paul oh i know you'll know his name he did shania twain and david bowie videos some friend of rick's because rick was the lead guitar player for english beat for like a long time and he has a lot of connection oh paul boyd we did a video with him in like july so if you're so fucking afraid they were like everyone has to get tested and i'm like fuck you i'm not getting tested i'm old nobody's testing me and throwing me in a fucking hospital i was like you know what i'll wear a mask i'll do all that shit but no i'm not gonna do that oh you're gonna ruin our, the band you know is that why they call you becky rack and just like assholes you know and i was just like Oh, man, fuck you. But they, but I'm saying that's what they really wanted to do. So they did it. You know what I mean? But, but here we are, like, they didn't want to do anything else. They didn't want to get together like once a week. You know, I mean, if you can't even get together for two hours once a week, then fuck you. What kind of band is that? Yes. I know. I'm not asking that much, you know? No, no, not, no, definitely not. But look, if you could have said kind of with all these years and, and decades of wisdom and experience, I mean, if you could have said something to a, your, say, like 16, 18 year old self starting out, is there a few key points that you would have just said, look, this is kind of some, you know, sagely wisdom, say? Uh, well, I don't like your grind. Don't believe the lies your head tells you about yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, like don't and don't judge yourself on how other people treat you. 
Yes. Tricky, isn't it? That is a tricky one. Yes. Confidence. I would tell myself to, uh, you know, fight harder, but don't be so scary. Because one thing is, the thing about being queer and out for as long as I have been, it's like, people look at you, because I can't hide. I can't, you know, if someone realizes they called me sir, and then they realize I'm a woman, they feel either stupid or bad, and their reaction is either they're mad at me, and their anti-queer shit comes out, because they feel like they got fooled. And you know, I mean, it's so much of other people's shit that I have to carry around, that that's, you know, it's like, that's what you can't, you know, um, let cloud your, vision of who you want to be. And I'm still trying to, I, I know who I don't want to be, but it's really hard to be who I want to be. But I'm still in, I'm still in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But do you, you, but you seem like you know who you want to be. I do, but it's not easy to get there because I have all these other things that I'm conditioned. You know, when you walk around on the defense all the time, um, Actually, to, 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 because I walked around on the defense all the time, I became the offense. You know, it's not unheard of for people that have been bullied to become oppressors themselves. So, but all I can do is clarify my position and ask other people to communicate with me so that I don't misunderstand. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, that's why I loathe dishonesty. You know, I, I'm trying to figure out if I'm very gullible. So I'm, if, I'm trying to figure out if what you're telling me is real while you're laughing because you know that it isn't. You know, it's like it's like shit like that that I don't have time for. Where it's just like, why would you? Okay, you know, goodbye. Get the fuck away from me. You know, I don't even know what. You know what I'm saying? Like, time. Life is too short. You know, for someone else's bullshit. Yes, well, this is this is these are the lessons we learn, isn't it? I keep, I keep thinking that when other people talk to me, that they're telling me the truth, like I am with them, and that's a big mistake. <laughs> so I, I think I think I would tell my young self, you know what? High enthusiasm, low expectation. Those are the rules of the game, and if you don't expect anything, you won't get hurt, <laughs> or you won't get disappointed. You won't get the yes. This is this is also true, actually. And uh, yeah, no, God, that's quite interesting. Sorry, I got a little emotional, but you know. no, no, God, that, that's fine. I mean, who doesn't in this day and age? But um, yeah, I always remember someone saying, "Change your expectations for appreciation, then your life will feel like a miracle." I mean, it's a bit cheesy, but I quite like that as well. You know. Well, so. no, I mean, and I, I was sober for um, eighteen and a half years off everything, and because marijuana is so legal in California now. I mean, I have a medical license, I have anxiety, and I smoke weed, and I haven't taken a cake or anything like that, or, but I still consider myself, like, and I don't want to do heroin or drink or anything like that, but I enjoy smoking weed, um, and I think when I started to smoke weed, I was at a point in my life where it was almost like I would get up, and I would have to go to work, and I would have to walk my dogs, and I would have, and I, when I think when I smoked pot, it was like, oh my god, I get to walk my dogs, I get to go cook food for people. I get to be alive and play the drums. Like marijuana is what I needed to let me see something I hadn't seen in a long time. And it made me remember who I was when I was probably 13 and everything was new. And I, before I started taking the real heavy drugs and drinking too much and, you know, letting other people, letting all that hate affect me. Um, 
So, I mean, it, it's really good because I feel like that kid again where it's like anything can happen. You're a fucking drummer. And now you're a fucking chef. You know, like, it's, it's like, you know, I mean, and, and also the Lunatics book, they say something about like my tattoos and the way I look, you know, when I went on Howard Stern back then, like nobody was out waving their hand like I'm gay, but I was. And I did it so Howard could get ratings. But I also did it so that he would say the Lunatic name or how I thought it would help us um so uh I've done a lot of things and put myself in more danger than I probably had to because I didn't see anybody out there when I was growing up that I could look to that was like yeah I'm gay it's cool it's okay there was no one like that that in my peers in music you know what I mean yes absolutely and does that sort of when you look back does that make you cringe or are you kind of like that was fine, you know, kind of. No, I, I know, I know exactly why I did it. It was, it was because a lot of people thought they had preconceived ideas of what a lesbian was. And when they saw me on Howard Stern, I was so comfortable with my queer identity that, that it made them comfortable to laugh and see, and like, I saw, it's in the book, but I saw some construction workers and I always, I most of them always w- rode a motorcycle which people will be like, oh, you think you're so tough? You know, it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. I just like riding motorcycles, you know? <laughs> but um, but uh, I, I passed by a construction site and, you know, he was really big on the radio show back then. So his cable show was really popular on the East Coast. Um, so everybody saw it, you know? And so when I, when I saw it, when I started hearing him start to, oh, I was like, oh, fuck, fuck. I'm probably going to get my end there. Like, oh man, we saw you, we heard. You are funny, man. Yeah, look at this dyke. She fucking told Howard. Hey, man, you were really cool. That was cool. And and these are like big lughead guys, you know? So, I mean, that was extraordinary. And that's exactly what I hoped would happen, is that whatever you thought a dyke was, guess what? They're not, they're whatever. They're like, you know what I mean? They're somebody that would probably make you laugh and you would want to hang out with, you know? Like, if you only knew, you know? And so, I mean, I was, uh, and then, you know, it doesn't make me cringe either because a few, there are a lot, I'm very accessible to the fan, to fans or people that want, I don't mean fans, that's people that want to reach out to me. I'm, you see that, you see that, how accessible yeah, yeah. I am. And I have a lot of women that say to me, oh my God, we played a show with you and you were so nice. Everybody else was like really mean to us. <laughs> Talking about like the girls, you know, the, and I, and I mean, I totally remember go i mean as much of an asshole as i was in the heroin when i saw other women musicians or girls that were at the show that were young or just there and were like oh my god you're so great i want to play i'd be like you should play the drum i would always make time with for them i would always talk to them i would always encourage them those people still write to me and they're like you were so not like they remember that and that matters to me that matters a lot yes that is that is your janice joplin moment isn't it it is. It is. It is <laughs> I just wondered if you felt that you'd given too much of yourself, that kind of exhausted you, you know, was kind of emotionally, spiritually, you know, left you slightly a shell, you know, empty, I suppose. Oh, I, I, oh, I think also where I was going was my look with the tattoos. Like, you know, I, I got one tattoo when I was 18. Over the years, I got more tattoos. They were hardly popular back then, <laughs> especially for women. The lunatics point out in the book that my look is assimilated so much today by men and women, but back then it wasn't. And I only wish my mom was here because she would see, like I, 
you know, I'm on the forefront of a style that is like, you know what I mean? Every other asshole has a tattoo or a lot of them or so, you know what I mean? I'm like, I, I can't, to read it in writing and know that someone else is knowing, giving me that, that like credit, that makes me really happy too. Cause I, even though you walk around and you're completely aware of it, even, even the celebrity of rock stars, chefs, I mean, that's crazy. And I was doing that, you know, I was fucking, you know, the, in the, on the line, sweating my ass off, you know, not having fun, you know, it wasn't glamorous. It only became glamorous when Anthony started talking about how fucked up it was <laughs> behind the line that people were like, oh, wow, this is so fascinating. It's like, yes. yeah, I probably worked for him and I don't even remember, you know, like, but I'm just saying there's so many things that I did that I feel like I opened a lot of fucking doors. I don't give a shit if people know or not, but it feels good that the lunatics knew. That feels good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I was sort of, you know, we used to go to Vegas a lot when we could come to America. And I didn't realize that celebrity chefs was such a big thing in, in Vegas and probably the rest of the world. I'm probably behind the times, aren't I? But suddenly it's like they're as popular as... Uh, just... plenty of their own, please. Well, George, uh, Gordon Ramsay, I suppose. But yeah, no, but they've become... But they have become very rock and roll, haven't they? The chef, you know. They... Well, I think we always were. I, I think chefs to me are like pirates. You know, we're back there like, we're making sure you have a smooth fucking ride. You better believe that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and the way that it is in the, you know, just with the knives and it's dangerous and, you know, you know, you, you could go, you can be like, fuck you, I'm fucking, you know, hating somebody because they did such a slight so stupid but when you're in the heat of the moment and you needed that whatever the fuck it and everyone's standing there with knives you know it's like you know i've i've had people like this fucking tall and i've been in charge of a kitchen and an event and i had you know i'm talking about preakness it's one of like the tri the triple crown races for horse race i mean and i'm in charge of like the vip room with the mayor of baltimore and like the trainers and I, my crew is like people i never worked for before but they flew us in because we're that's our that's what we do and i got a guy this fucking big yelling at me like i and i'm and i'm just like fuck you you motherfucker you're gonna fucking you know and i mean i'm the whole time i'm thinking this guy might take that knife and slice my fucking head off but i mean you have to be taken seriously at every point of your job when you're in the kitchen or the disrespect that you get is, you know, it's so bad. It's so bad. You won't last. You will not become a chef. You will walk out of there in tears and not that I haven't, um, but I, but you know, it's, it's gnarly. It's really gnarly. Yes, I could, I could imagine. Well, I worked in a bakery when I was quite young and it was quite relentless. You know, you couldn't miss a shift. You couldn't be, you couldn't be late. You had to sort of, well, you did your whole team was like you fucking asshole <laughs> you know because they probably couldn't replace you so the next day you do come in there there it's like oh you fucking you know you know it's that weird like camaraderie but it's also like if you're the missing link you're the missing link like where were you yes you know? i know it was um and don't That's don't 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 forget the yeast, I suppose, really. That was always one of those moments where, you know, cover, <laughs> covering your ass when you thought, shit, I forgot the yeast. Fuck, I better put it in there quickly. Oh, yeah, I, I still go, come home from work and when I'm laying down to go to sleep, I have like menus going through my head or what I'm going to make the next day. And it's endless. <laughs> it's a, it is a hard gig. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, Becky, thank you ever so much for this. This has been awesome. And um, I'm going to track down your um, Technotribe. Is it? No. No, you, I'm going to have to send you, you're not going to find any recordings 
unless I send it to you because okay. nothing. I, I would love to, I'd love to hear it actually. I'd went way over time, but I actually, I really enjoy talking to you. I'm, I'm sorry if I didn't give you enough time to ask the question. Oh my God, no, it's fine. It's absolutely, fine. it's been great. And it's nice to see your dogs as well. So um, yeehaw for dogs and pets. Anyway, look, I'm going to have to go to bed soon, but um, thank you ever so much. I'll keep in touch and ask you about the- I know when you air, when are you going to air this? Has this well, hopefully next week. So that will be good. And I can always send you a link and then you can put it up. Oh, yeah, please do. I will. I would love to. Okay, look, I'll find where my mouse has gone. Okay, well, look, take care of yourself and thanks ever so much. I know Thank I'm, you, I'm very English. I start waving at anything. Um, anyway, take care. <laughs> look after yourself. See you later. All right, you too, man. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. Ha! You never thought it was going to come, but it did. Uh, that was me in com uh, conversation with Becky Breck, the drummer with various bands, lots of them. Um, a huge thank you for giving me the time for that. And I always, um, just to say, I love leaving those last bits in because it sort of it makes me smile as I fumble my way through life, as I do at the end of it, every interview as well. So look, massive thank you to Becky, as I probably just said. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Make it nice and positive, or constructive at least. Otherwise, don't bother. And also, I say, I've uh, been doing these interviews for a long time, and I've archived them all on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. That's true. That is a true story. So anyway, if you're interested in 80s indie pop, do check, just check them out, because they might just change your life. They won't, but you never know. They might be that obscure band that you want to find, and there you go. So look, I'm going to say goodbye. Have a great week. Stay safe and uh, we'll meet again.